Welcome to the podcast version of Roles in Depth and this launch episode with Henrik Christiansen in cooperation with Vivolver. Robots in Depth is supported by Aptomika. Visit aptomika.com to connect. You will find all past episodes and more on robotsindepth.com. Welcome to this episode of Robots in Depth. Today I'm honored to have Henrik Christiansen and we're going to talk about everything in robotics like we usually do. How did you get into robotics? Tell me the beginning of the story. So actually I used to work in computer vision. So I got my degree in, uh, in computer vision and then um, an opportunity came up where uh, we got a serious amount of money and said, what would be the difference? And I said, what if we could put cameras on mobile platforms and move them around, see what's going on in the world, that would be really cool. So for that reason, we bought a mobile platform, and that's how I sort of got into robotics. And and this mobile platform was quite rudimentary compared to what we have today. I oh, no, 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 very very basic. It was, yeah. it was a you know very basic platform, mm-hmm. but it made the difference. We could get started. We could do very simple, initially mobile robot sort of driving around in the hallways, uh, and that was a good start. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and where were you when you were doing this work? So this was at Alborg University in Denmark. Uh, so back uh, nineteen. What did you use the vision for? So, so we were um, at Albany University. We were using it for uh, doing scene understanding. So we were in some of the very early uh, EU projects. So, so 25, 30 years ago, and and getting in and just getting started. Wanted to be able to do. Can we find uh, basic navigation using vision? Can we find where are the rooms? Can we track people? Uh, we did one of the very first active vision heads. So two cameras moving around. Uh, that was all, that was back ninety one. Very interested in how could we model what humans are doing and and how could we use this to sort of drive around. So very early vision, uh, really basic cameras, uh, very little computing power. Mm. Uh, so we we made tremendous progress the last twenty five years of getting to where you can do it in real real time. You can do it in megapixel cameras. Uh, we have much better mobile platforms, and it was not until. Um, I got to Stockholm that I actually got into doing sort of robot manipulation. Mm. So the, all of the early work was just cameras on mobile platforms. Mm. I guess that's also limited by the technology that was available at the time. That oh, simply yeah. was what you could do, right? Yeah, no, no, it was very, you could only get very basic mobile platforms. Uh, it was hard to get a, you know, if you bought a robot manipulator, you would have to have a seriously big room, you would have to have it behind fences. It was, it was a huge challenge and we just didn't have those facilities at the time. Then you came to KTH in Stockholm actually, yep. which is my hometown. Yeah. Uh, can you talk a little bit about why you ended up there and what you did when you were there? So, um, so that was sort of an interesting opportunity. I was very much, when I was at Alborg University, involved in doing EU projects. Uh, and then um, my good friend Jan-Olof Eklund at KTH uh, was involved with one of these strategic research foundations that Sweden was setting up on saying we want to do something very strategic in a few areas. Uh, so they managed to secure a grant on autonomous systems. And Jan Olaf called me up and said, we need a director for this center. Would you want to come to Stockholm? I was a little, you know, as a Dane defecting to Sweden, <laughs> that's, a, that's a pretty big deal. Uh, but nonetheless, it was such a great opportunity, I had to go. So uh, we built up a center that initially, from almost no existence, had people in mechanical engineering, electrical engineering, applied math, and computer science going after autonomous systems. 
um, from uh, from sort of really trying to understand the basics of autonomy, but also trying to understand how could we do early work on grasping, how could we do early work on navigation. Uh, did a lot of work with uh, ABB Robotics Investors. Uh, did interesting work with Electrolux. So I was part of the team with Electrolux that did the first autonomous vacuum cleaner. Uh, before Roomba and, and all of this. And um, we also did some, some healthcare work. So very broad and, and very interesting. And, and that really sort of helped get the Center for Autonomous Systems to be one of the leading institutions uh, in Europe. Uh, at the time, it was a lot of fun. Um, and, and there was, uh, compared to Denmark, in Sweden, there's a lot of robotics companies. Yeah. So it was very interesting. It was much easier to build up sort of industrial relationships. Uh, I'm very adamant about we not only do interesting research, but also transform it into the real world. Mm. Uh, so that was a lot of fun. Yeah, that's why I am into I am an old software developer. Uh, I did that for more than 10 years. But why I'm so excited about robotics is because it's both software and hardware, and it's out there in the real world doing actual stuff, right? Exactly. And that's why, why I'm more excited about robotics than software alone. Not exactly, and that's sort of... And that was one of the things, for instance, for what we did in the U.S., where we're looking at. Um, so I'm, you know, the title of of my slide, sort of the roadmap, is when the internet gets connected to the real world, we get robotics. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. Uh, we're going to be talking about the roadmaps, uh, I'm sure. Sure. Because you work with the with the U.S. version of the roadmap, and of course, so, there's also European version of right. the roadmap. Right. So, so the first thing, um, so I, so we were actually very engaged when I was at KGH in a number of EU projects, had a very large portfolio of EU projects, which. They still have, mm -hmm. uh, and um, as part of this, uh, we sat together one night and said, "You know what? I really don't know what's going on in Norway. I know more about what's going on at MIT than I know what's going on in all of Norway. This is mm -hmm. a little bit sad." Mm -hmm. uh, and then we said, "Why don't we start a mailing list in Europe to try and exchange research results, all of those things?" Uh, and then about a year later, the European Commission called me up and said, this is amazing that we're trying to coordinate European research. Could we sponsor you? <laughs> I'm like, um, sure, why not? Well, and that sort of led to the uh, European Robotics Network. Uh, and as part of the European Robotics Network, we started writing a national robotics or a European robotics roadmap, which then led to the Cognitive Systems Program and, and a number of these efforts, which was very successful. And then uh, after 10 years in Stockholm, it's dark in the winter, you know. Yeah, I uh, and know, very depressing. I know. Uh, so, so uh, I got an offer to go to to Georgia Tech, and when I came to Georgia Tech, I said, in the U.S., there's a lot of uh, individual funding programs, but there was really no strategy overall for what's happening. So, for that reason, I said it would be nice if we could come up with an overall national strategy, put together a group of uh, somewhere around 80 people from industry and 80 people from academia and wrote sort of a, a strategy looking at where are the business opportunities, why is it hard, what kind of R&D could we do that would actually impact the real world. So it was interesting, I did this first in Europe, and then I moved to the US and had an opportunity to do it again in the US. Yeah, really cool. And now the the roadmaps and, and, and keeping track of what's happening in robotics is more or less standard. I mean, oh, yeah. we have the ERF conference that every year brings all of European robotics together and, and we just share our research results, right. uh, our entrepreneurial efforts, and also the input from the commission is very important because right. they are keeping uh, um, a very strong, they're keeping up the very strong support they've had for robotics. Uh, oh, yeah. 
it's a very big program. I, I understand. Oh, it's, a, it's even bigger than the U.S. I mm. think it, in in many respects, mm. we have the same thing in the U.S. So we have a uh, what is called the PI meeting. So we all of the people will get together to talk about what are the things that's been funded, mm. what's going on, what's the future strategy, uh, and and I think these are very valuable for all both in Europe and the U.S. to to really get cohesion, get people to know each other in in Europe, sort of across the, the country boundaries, and really building a, a very strong community, which is very helpful. I also think it's very helpful both in Europe and in the US, we, we have National Robotics Weeks, w which is great for outreach to tell the rest of the world about all of the cool stuff that's going on in robotics, because most people have no idea. No, and this is actually a, a, a cause to a reason why I'm doing this interview show. I want you guys that are actually doing the uh, being part of the robot revolution tell the real story about this straight to the general public. P pretty much like Robotics Week or these PI ERF things. Right. Uh, and I also want that to be done uh, without a filter, right. without an agenda, because so much of robotics can either be sound like science fiction and people don't plan or prepare for it, or it sounds scary and then they try to stop it. But we should use this as an opportunity. Right, absolutely. No, I'm always saying, you know, one of my worst enemies is Hollywood. Yeah, absolutely. Be, be, because, be, because you know they put up these horror stories of you know Will Smith going in there has to save mankind because a robot has gone rogue, and I'm like, yeah, that's not what it looks like. You know, come to my lap and I'll show you. This is yeah, uh, in some sense for Hollywood very depressing. Yeah, we have much more mundane problems. No, not that, but at the same time, I understand it. I so. Uh, I understand that people are worried about, am I going to lose my job? What's going to happen to this? Uh, and and it, it's and we need to, as roboticists, address this and, and convince people that it's about empowering people. It's not about replacing people. Mm. And, and, and I think that's very important that we have an important educational role to do. And at the same time, we are seeing tremendous progress in technology. And, and we are on an exponential curve, which leaves the risk that unless you continue to educate yourself, you could get marginalized. So, so, so it's important, and it's important that we get that message out there. Yeah, and, and this is the same thing that's happened in any uh, technology revolutions, uh, one of the many we've gone through over like thousands of years. But, but one example I, I've heard is that in the early 50s, there were 6,000, no, there were 40,000 people going to work in New York as elevator operators. Right. And we probably don't have a single one today. No, no. Um, and the world isn't worse off. No, no. Um, you can move on and do other things. No, no, and the same, you know, on the other hand, if you look at it probably as recently as 10 years ago, mm. most companies did not have a social media mm. uh, representative. Today, any company with sort of respect for itself has to have somebody that considers what is our social media profile. So, so we get a very different set of jobs, the same thing, uh, but, but there are surprises in there. So when I started 30 years ago uh, on the... On a, when I entered the, uh, the workforce, I had a, uh, a secretary, and at the time I got my own computer, and she was scared stiff and said, oh, you know, what am I gonna do now that you get your own computer? I don't have to type for you anymore. And she was a typist in a typing pool. Mm -hmm. There are more secretaries today than there were 30 years ago, but they don't type for me anymore. 
And, you know, they they and, manage the social media account. Instead. Exactly. And they do all of these other things. Mm. And the same, you know, on the other hand, I also, I've made some mistakes in my life. I remember when I was in, in elementary school and we were offered a course in typing. Mm. And I said, I will never have to type in my mm. life. And, you know, mm. today I probably spend six hours a day typing on a computer. Who knows, maybe 15 years from now, we'll just be talking to the computer and we don't have to type at all. So, but there was a period in between where mm. we all had to sort of sit in front of this. Uh, but it's also interesting there are some su surprises in terms of, of um, employment. So if I look at it, um, there are more bank personnel today than 10 years ago, mm -hmm. which really surprised me because I never go to my bank. You know, I use my cash card and go to the ATM and I take out money. If I don't think I go every year. Mm, no, that's and still, there are more people in the bank. And I, and so I asked the banking people, and I said, it's because the banking sector is growing so rapidly that even though the private customers don't show up anymore, the rest of the economic system is growing so rapidly that they need more people. The hard part is to make sure that we have to have people that actually get a reasonable level of education, mm. which is very important. Uh, and and because if you have sort of a base level of education, you can get moved to different places. Uh, and I think it's important for the future, or, and even for the current generation, that you need to think about lifelong learning. What you learn today, you know, if, if we just look 30 years back, most of us did not have a laptop, most of us did not even have a computer. Uh, and, and we didn't have computer games, there's just lots of things that we didn't have. And today, these are sort of self-evident things. 10 years ago, most people didn't have a smartphone. Uh, so so it's uh, it, it's important to, to do this. and, and and it's important to, to realize that in most cases we can't predict it. So like, you know, Watson when from IBM said that initially the world market for computers was four. You know, the... He was the, quite wrong there. He was quite uh, wrong there. The same thing, you know, the, the CEO for Compaq, when the first PC came out, said nobody would ever want to have one of those in, in our homes. Uh, and, you know, for uh, the, the Union Telegraph came out when the first phone came out and said, this is not a convenient telephone me or communication medium. So it's all of these really wrong predictions. And I think we have to prepare for the fact that robots are going to be pervasive in our life going forward. We're going to have them in our homes. We're going to drive driverless cars. We're going to go to get scanned for all sorts of medical diseases, buy a robot. We're going to get, you know, deliveries from Amazon and all sorts of other places by robots. So it's going to be a very pervasive part of our life. For that reason, it's also very important that we build robots that are accessible to people. Whether it's a gaming play, game playing teenager that spent 15,000 hours on a game, or it's my mother who's never used a robot, we need to be able to accommodate both of them. And that's why in robotics, it's very important for us to not only work on the latest technology, but also work on how do we get this technology in such a way that it can be used by regular people. Yeah, get it out there and, and, and really be accessible, as you say. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So we see that, for instance, the vacuum cleaner have made good strides. They're quite common and they, they, they do work quite well. We also see the lawnmower robots are right. quite popular. Um, and the self-driving car is making an amazing progress. We see the Tesla that's in oh, some yeah. situation is actually driving itself, right. although there's still a quite a way to go before we can fall asleep in the car. So on the other hand, we are seeing people falling asleep in the car. <laughs> so, so there Not was, a good no, idea. No, 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 but there was one on social media last yeah. week of this woman driving on a Californian highway and you're seeing her and she was yeah. you know, sound asleep, the Tesla was taking her down the highway. Mm. And so like, it's a little too early. Yeah, uh, we're not really ready for that. We're yeah. not really ready for that. 
but but that's all but that's why i think it's very important because right now tesla is sort of saying you have to be ready to intervene mm. at any time people are not going to sit like this for very long then no. they're going to they're going to get a message on sms and go oh yeah i could communicate with my mm. so so and one of the big questions there is how do we make sure that people have context awareness mm. So how, how can I make sure that they are they're really in the loop? Hmm. Uh, I think we're going to have some other problems about how do we make the driving natural enough that people don't get motion sick? Mm. Uh, because it, in, you know, so, so it's all of these the Tesla's things. Tesla's been uh, described as quite aggressive sometimes. So oh, exactly. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure they're working on that. But the, the 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 notion that the human should be able to, in a split second, take over the driving—that is, um, from my point of view, the really challenging issue. Oh, yeah. No, 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 no. We need to find a way of making it much smoother and, mm. and, and find a, a way of doing this. On the other hand, I think it's very encouraging because it allows people, as they get older, to get access to transportation. Mm. You know, if, if I'm looking at it, um, most of the people I know, <clears throat> and my my parents and others, are worried about that um, they don't want to take a taxi whenever they have to go somewhere. They don't want to use an Uber. Mm. If I could give them a car, that would allow them to go to church and all sorts of other things without having a driver and without being in a position where they can afford or where they can have a driver's license anymore because it might be due to eyesight, it might mm. be due to all sorts of things mm. that, that make this it will allow them to get out of their house, have a much more much richer life than they have today. Mm. Same thing, having kids. I'm not happy, you know, if I look at I don't have kids myself, but if I had kids, you know, I had a teenage daughter, I'm not sure I'm ready to put her in an Uber driver with no, you know who knows what their background is. I know mm. they do background checks and all sorts mm. of things. Nonetheless, I would feel uncomfortable about this. Mm. A driverless car, I would feel much more comfortable. Yeah, yeah. Of course, I'm a roboticist. So. <laughs> yeah, which of course should tell the people watching this something that if you would put your own family in that self-driving car and with your experience and knowledge, uh, it's probably it's safe. That that's oh. a well-founded decision, yeah, right? Uh, no, no, exactly. It's it. No, it's not something you do lightly. Mm. Uh, so no, so. So, so, but, but I think we're we're going to see technology be such a pervasive part mm. of, of our everyday life, um, and 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 it's anything from helping people getting out of bed, we're getting to a place where we can do uh, basic hygiene like shaving people, and we start we're almost there where we can start bathing people and mm. things like this. So we can give almost any function from the time you get up all the way and you know soon I'm sure we'll get robotic bats mm. that will modulate its functions out during the night so that mm. you don't get you don't lie in the same position mm. they make sure you get the right sleep uh, at Georgia Tech we worked with a, a person from California Henry Evans on his paralyzed from the neck down so so he wanted to get a robot uh, he saw uh, one of my colleagues Charlie Kemp on CNN so he called up Charlie and said Charlie you need to help me uh, and he was paralyzed from the neck down so we were like okay this is going to be complicated stuff. And he said, I'd like to get a robot that allows me to scratch myself when I have an itch. So, Such a fundamental thing for you and me. but Exactly, but for him, hadn't, having to call on his wife and said, oh, you know, I really, uh, that's a big deal. So we gave him a robot that could allow him to scratch himself mm -hmm. and then said, oh, if you can do this, can you shave me? I'm very unhappy about how my wife shaves me, so if, if, if I could do this myself, I would be much, much happier. So we gave him a robot that would allow him to save him. And then said, it would be great if, if, you, if I could get a robot that would allow me to feed myself. Because, you know, my wife is my primary caregiver. This is a huge time commitment for her. If I could feed myself, 
she would be able to free up, have both some, some personal time, but also be able to do a lot of other things. Mm. So for her, this was a big deal, and for him, it was a big deal. He now had a little bit of independence, whereas before, he was totally relying on her mm. for all of his functions. These are small steps, but makes a huge difference for these people. Yeah, and as boy, you mentioned that the wife of this person was her was the primary caregiver. When we what we gain here is two very important things. When robotics can take over some of these tasks, she gains time, he gains independence, right. and they also get the relationship back because she oh, can yeah. transfer back into being his wife rather than to being his prime caregiver. Exactly. And those three things are fundamentally oh, yeah. super important. No, no, it's very, very important. So, no, so, and, and we're seeing this, and, and the, at the same time, the price is coming down to a level where we can give this to people. Mm. And you know, the same we see people as they get older, uh, they have a hard time cleaning their apartments, they have a lot of things. And still, you know, they would like to have a clean apartment because when they have guests, you know, they don't want to sort of, oh, there's dust in the corners and things like that. So, so giving them this quality of life is going to be very important, and we are in a situation where the demographics is moving in such a way we're going to get more and more uh, elderly people. Yeah, and I'm going to be an old person. I'm certainly uh, not want to use this no, technology no, when I'm old. So. Not exactly. Like I've said all along, I would like to see technology progress to a level where by the time I retire, I would have a robot that would allow me to get out of bed, take a shower, get dressed, prepare a meal, without having to rely on other people. I still want to associate with other people, but I want to do this in a social context rather than them showing up purely to service me for my daily needs. Freeing up again the people to, to form a personal bond with a, with a person rather than, in quote, using that to, to just care, take care of the base. Exactly. And I really want the pace of technology to be such that my independence as it goes down over the like, coming many years, I hope, yeah. uh, technology actually keeps up with oh, it yeah. and keeps the, keeps the curve exactly. neutral. No, no, and, and I'm convinced, you know, by the time I retire, I will have an autonomous driving car that would allow me to still move around and go on vacations and all sorts of things. Yeah. Uh, and and so, so, I, so I agree, we should, and, and, and I think we will see this, uh, but, but the big challenge is going to be, how do we make sure that it not only is accessible to you and I, who are, technologically very well sort of integrated using a lot of advanced technology. I want people that have never used a computer to be able to use this technology. Mm. But on the other hand, I would also like to be able so that it's even fun for a 14-year-old kid that has sort of played 10,000 hours of computer games to feel it. So I would like to have a knob I can sort of move on saying novice, expert, and over time, as you feel more and more comf uh, confident, it follows you. Mm. Ideally, it should learn what is your usage pattern mm. and be able to use this so that all the time it, it's moving you in the right direction. Yeah. yeah, but that's that's a very, very interesting thing. And I also think that I've heard that from, from when we test robots out there, especially for the elderly, uh, as you mentioned, keeping your home clean is a fundamental task that right. people want to do. Uh, and what I heard, understand that, when they use ro robots to do this, they feel that they are doing it. Right. They are doing it together with the robot, right. rather than having somebody else do it right. for them. That the robot is doing 99% of the work, ah. they are still doing it together with the robot, much as they did with the regular vacuum cleaner. Not exactly. So it gives them the independence. Yeah. It allows them to, to do and, and and you're doing it on their schedule. Mm. It's mm. not like I have to be home from 9 mm. to 10 because mm. somebody from home care is coming to clean my apartment. Now they get to do it. And so no, it gives them much higher satisfaction. Yeah, yeah. So we've talked 
about self-driving cars, we talked about robots in the home. You have a very unique, deep perspective of robotics as a whole. Where do you see other areas that is about to become possible? What are the viewers going to watch out for and wait for in the coming two to five years or something like that? Well, so I think um, I think we'll see the traditional application of robotics has been in manufacturing. I think it'll continue to be in manufacturing. I think it'll be very much in supply chain. So in terms of delivering things to people, delivering things to factories. So, so I think we're going to see a revolution in Amazon. Um, it, already today, we are almost getting to the level where um, books get printed in a storage facility very close to where you live. And then they basically put you know the, the cover on it and they send it to you. So you can order a book and they start printing it as soon as you press the buy button. And within an hour, it will actually get delivered to you. So I think we'll see much more of this where material gets delivered. It will, it will be produced locally, not in China or not in you know some other country, but very, very close to you. And I sort of see the long-term evolution is that we'll put the printer in the back of the truck. So as it's on its way to you, it will print it and put the cover on and it will be fresh off the press when they pick it up and get it to, to you. I think we'll see this with food. I think we'll see this uh, very quickly so that, and I think we'll get to a point where we might have food that has never been touched by humans. Mm. Because we've seen these infections, people have a cold, they have an, a flu, they have all of these things. With this, I can now guarantee much better food quality. We can track it much better. We can uh, reduce waste because people drop apples and, and stuff exactly. like that. And uh, if we reduce the, if we uh, waste the food towards the end of the chain, we've added a lot of environmental impact, and then suddenly nobody and eats lost it. a lot of money. Yeah. Uh, no, no. So, so, so it'll reduce the overall cost of this. Mm. Uh, so, so I think we will very much move move manufacturing away from mass manufacturing far away from where you are, move manufacturing much, much closer where it is today. That will move jobs away from these foreign countries and back very close to, to where you are. Uh, I, I think we'll see uh, much higher degrees of automation in using car factories uh, to, to get this down mm -hmm. uh, and, and, and all sorts of uh, things. So, so I think manufacturing is going to go through a revolution. I think the supply chain is going to go through a revolution. So already today, in a number of big cities, you have Amazon Express where, or Amazon Prime, where you can order something and they will deliver it within an hour. Mm. Uh, and, and this can even be very exotic products. Mm. So, you know, so recently I bought a very high-end Nikon camera. Uh, there were only supposed to be 10 of them in the US. Mm. I pressed and within an hour they knocked on my door and they said, here you go. And I was mm. like, damn, you know. Mm -hmm. So we, we're getting there in terms of doing this. Mm. Uh, for, for all sorts of products, I, I think the same we will see. Um, uh, we'll start seeing, um, for, uh, for instance, for uh, clothing, that you will be able to go into a dressing room and it will scan your 3D body shape and it will sew clothing to your shape. Uh, you know, so you don't have to buy a pair of jeans and they're in a particular size fraction. This is what they are. And you're like, mm, yeah, it's not quite what I wanted, or a shirt or something like that. We're already starting to see this now in the US, where you can take a cell phone and you can take a picture of yourself with no shirt on, and then they will sew a shirt that's a perfect uh, fit to your shape. Mm. And then, uh, then that brings us to mass customization. Is exactly. that one thing for many? You have one thing for you. Exactly. And also the fact that we're also only producing what people actually buy and want. Buying. This is going to drive costs down. It's going to drive environmental impact down. 
and it, it's just going to make everything so much more efficient. Right. Not exactly. So, so, but, but I think that. So, so, I think we'll see it in manufacturing. We'll get this mass customization already today. Audi is making more than six six million different configurations of the A3. Mm -hmm. Jaguar is making more than a million different configurations of the Jaguar. So, we're seeing all of these cars getting mass customization. I think we'll see it in clothing. I think we'll start to see it in food. So people have various kinds of allergies and say, well, you know, I can't really, I'm sensitive to this. You will get it made. Mm. So it's fully customized to you. Mm. Uh, and, and then I think we'll, we'll see it in, in, in all sorts of deliveries in terms of transportation. We'll see it in healthcare. Uh, we'll certainly see it in, in, um, in all sorts of outdoor environmental. So I think we can do much better cleanup of this. So overall, we're getting, getting a world that is much more automated. The other area that I think we'll get it in is we'll get it in entertainment. Mm, so, so, so we'll get robots that will help us have fun for play for for this. Already today, uh, Lego and Universal Studios have uh, robo coasters. So it's a robot where the two seats at the end of the arm, mm. and we can move it around. So now you're getting a roller coaster, and you tell me how how sort of risky are you? Do you want you know the, the scary one or the easy one? Yeah. And, and you, then they'll do different kinds of motions. Mm. This will come to our homes. Mm. So we'll start to see much more entertainment. And the nice thing is that this might actually be one of the first areas where we get it. Mm. Because we have a, a very non-rational relationship to toys. We're willing to pay much more money to get sort of a fun experience than we are, you know, if I look at something like vacuuming, I'm gonna say, how many hours am I, am I vacuuming a year? Okay, what's it worth to me? How much money am I gonna pay? So we're very rational about what a vacuum cleaner can cost. A toy, you know, the sky is the limit. Yeah, everybody that's uh, ever owned a sailboat knows that. Oh yeah, not exactly. <laughs> that stuff so, is expensive because they know we're gonna pay for it anyway, right? Well, no, no, and, 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 and it's very, it's not like when you buy a sailboat or, you know, I have a very high-end car, mm. I could get by with a Mini or something like that and, and it would be much, much cheaper. Mm. But instead I'm paying for this and, and it's not like I'm sitting there, mm, how many hours am I mm. in my car? What's it worth to me? It's fun. I'm willing to pay. Mm, and, mm. and so there, I think also with robotics, we're going to get a number of things that will help us get entertainment. Yeah. And I certainly, I love playing. I have a, the access to a number of small robotics kits. And right. it's so much fun to build stuff. Oh, and yeah. It's so much fun to bring them out to, to people and build stuff together with them. So I'm right. thinking that that's a social thing, too. No, no, but also, and it's a very important tool also for doing education. Yes, absolutely. Uh, so so, so I, I just saw here at Robo Business, mm a bunch of kids that have designed a, um, a, a, a stand for bicycles. Mm -hmm. uh, this was a bunch of fourth graders mm -hmm. that had come up with a design for how to do a bike stand, how to build in sort of computing into it so that you would you would park your, your bike, it would scan on your phone. If somebody else unlocked it, it would come up with a message on your phone saying somebody's trying to steal your bike. Uh, and, and, and it was built in so that there was a stand for uh, putting in your biking helmet, there's a mirror so that the girls could set their hair and all of this. These are fourth graders, you know, it's unbelievable, you know. Yeah, we uh, really have to work hard as old geezers to stay ahead, exactly. right? No, so, but, but, but it's great. They are learning already early on to how to do programming, mm. how to integrate their, their technology into their everyday life, uh, how to start making money, how to really think about it. This is amazing, you know, this is, and, and this is, now they've learned about calculating, programming, language, design, 
these are all core skills to learn for the rest of your life. And the fact that they started this as fourth graders, I'm, I'm just like, wow. Yeah, imagine a fourth grader doing that. Yeah. So they're probably like 10, 12 years old. So, yeah, 10, 11 years old. Yeah, that's amazing. And they're yeah. building automated solutions, right? Not exactly. And they're starting to start a company. Yeah. You know, I'm like... <laughs> <laughs> but, and, and this is this is what robotic enables. Yeah. I mean, this if if you if you're out there listening to this, I'm thinking you, both you and I can say that this is the stuff robotics enables. Yeah, and this is real. This is actually it's happening. so cool. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it's a, no, and same is. Uh, so I'm seeing it in. Uh, it's starting to be international, but for the longest time, there's been a competition in the U.S. called uh, the U.S. First. Mm competition so it's a robotics competition now it's available from anywhere from kindergarten to high school kids and i'm i'm engaged with the uh, with the high school kids every year uh they get a a um, mission the first saturday in january then they have six weeks to build a robot um, this year they had to build a robot that could conquer a fortress mm. uh, so they had to be able to shoot balls so sort of like cannonballs they had to be able to climb the walls six weeks you mm. know they started out with this very basic stuff, got it all the way, and, and then people are like, well, that's just robotics. Uh, there's a lot of kids that won't be interested. Yeah. No, it's not. So it's really about how do you get 25 high school kids to work together to be able to build this robot. They have to go out and get funding, mm -hmm. have to be able to, to present their ideas. They have to have the engineers that can actually build it. They have to have a logistics team that can take them to the various contests. Mm -hmm. And then finally, they have to have a management team that can bring all of this together. So it's like starting a small company. Yeah, yeah. As actually a, a mid-sized company. A mid -sized company. 25 people. Yeah, no, no. So, and, and, and then they go out and they do this. Mm -hmm. And the ones that win the, the regional contest are guaranteed a scholarship to go to university. Mm. That's mm. a pretty big deal. Yeah, you know, that, yeah. that, that, that you guarantee, this is a way of guaranteeing that you can get an affordable education. Mm. So whether you're from a rich home or from a poor home, this, you know, if, if you have the, the energy and the drive, mm. You can be you can be a success. Yeah, and and it's really important that we get in get this into the hands of the kids early because oh, yeah. I, we see that with computers that to the, the kids that have access to had access to them early, uh, and I was fortunate enough to have that, and I really feel that I have a an, a different understanding of what computers can do and what they can't do and what right. takes a long time and what. Yeah. could be done reasonably easy, uh, as to, pose to my friends that didn't have access to a computer in the same right. way. Uh, so I'm thinking if you can put your kids in contact with robotics, that's something that you should absolutely oh, take yeah. the opportunity to do. And, and it doesn't cost that much money to get started. No. no. You can get started, you know, for less than a thousand kroners mm. and actually do something or, yeah. you know, $100 and, and get something that... Uh, that th you can get started with very little and you can do amazing things uh, mm -hmm. and 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 typically it will inspire the kids to really go and uh, do and it helps them with math it helps them mm -hmm. with programming and so, so there's a lot of ways that this would mm -hmm. would be very valuable but I think that's important that we also embrace it so that as the kids get robotics technology as they grow up they would not be scared of it yeah. they're gonna embrace yeah. it and say oh you know this this can help me yeah um, absolutely anywhere from vacuuming your kids room to all sorts of new toys. Yeah, because this actually bridges very nicely to a very big trend today, which is co-robotics, where people and robotics combine, because especially when it comes to artificial intelligence, humans are still enormously flexible. Right. And also when it comes to dexterity of our hands, right. robotics manipulation is not at 
par or won't be at par with humans for a very long no, no. time. So, and being not afraid of robots, understanding robots will really bridge to the co-robotic scene very nicely. Right. Could you talk a little bit about the co-robotic scene? How do you, what's your view about how are we going to interact and work with robotics for a single task? Right. So, so, so as I think the, the traditionally we've had, you know, robots behind the fence, it was not safe to be around them. And now we actually have a safety standard that specifies how humans and robots can interact, foretask how hard can they collide, when when do they, the robots have to, to stop, what are all of those, so, so that you no longer need to have a fence, you can collaborate. The best example I had was, I was uh, when I was in Sweden, Volvo approached us and said, we, ha we would like to build uh, a, a robot that would help sort our mail. About 10% of the mail we get every day is mislabeled. So people say, there's nobody in room 334, that's Olson, so where is this person? And and they said, could you build a robot? So we would like, as a uh, as an employer, to embrace diversity and, and integration into the workplace. So they were imagining they would have a, a person that was mobility impaired in this position that would be able to sort the mail, and it, this would be a way for, for them to sort of embrace a broader set of, of people. And the safety guy showed up and said, no, no, you can't put a robot next to this person. We won't allow this. Mm -hmm. I'm like, really? Mm -hmm. Now with the co-robots, we actually are in a situation where a robot can work with humans on solving specific tasks. So, so we can do any, so, so the first level is you can put robots, humans and robots in the same space and it's considered safe. We know how hard you can hit each other, which is sort of one level of co-robot that there's simply coexistence. The next one is to be able to have a robot that helps you solve tasks. So this could be heavy lifting. It's too heavy, so if you did it as a person, you would ruin your neck and or ruin your, your elbow and, and your shoulder. So instead, they can now go and do the heavy lifting. You still guide it to be the right place, but it enforces you to be sort of a stronger person. You're not ruining your, your economics. So right now we're seeing, I was at a big slaughterhouse a, about a week ago. Uh, and I saw these people, and they're very uh, unergonomic tasks to be done. Those we're getting replaced by by humans that can they can still be guiding the robot, but it's doing all the hard work. Making uh, all of us superheroes, no, basically. No, exactly, making all of us superheroes, so we can all be Iron Man in some sense for, with this. But the other one is then to get to robots that are truly collaborative, that works with us on solving tasks. Where uh, so the best example I have is you know we're building a robot at Georgia Tech that allows the robot to help me prepare a meal. Mm. So, so that, you know, I give the robot the recipe and say, we're gonna make, um, you know, Swedish meatballs with mashed potatoes. Mm. I will start peeling the potatoes and say, oh, let me go and pick up the meat. Mm. Uh, and, and it will, you know, heat up the meat so that, and then, you know, I will start, I'll start cooking the potatoes. I'll, then I'll start on the meatballs and then, you know, it comes and oh, I can see you're busy with the meatballs. Let me mash the potatoes for you. Mm. So the fact that we are collaborating on solving a task, but I didn't have to program it very detailed. Instead, I would be able to, to give it basically the recipe and it understands what are you doing? What can I do? So we're really collaborating. So it would be like having another person in the kitchen while we did this. Yeah, very interesting. That's also very close cooperation. And, and you can imagine, you know, on a weekday, you're on your way home, you're stuck in traffic. You use your cell phone to sort of say, we're going to have, you know, mm. pasta bolognese tonight mm. and mm. it'll do it. Uh, mm. and, and the same you can imagine for a lot of elderly people mm. that might not want to cook anymore. 
having mm. a robot that would actually allow you to do this. But mm. every now and again, they said, no, I really want to be able to mm. to participate in this. Mm. So there we're seeing co-robots and, and, and traditional robotics grows on the average 15% a year. Mm. Co-robots grow somewhere around 60 to 70% a year mm. because that's where the next big revolution is going to be. It's really going to be about robots that empower people to do things that they otherwise have a hard time doing either because they run out of time or they lose their capability or they're not strong enough. Mm. This is where the next revolution will be. But it also opens up for new e uh, economies. Mm. So imagine now that you're, you know, you're a very good chef. Mm. You can imagine that you put together a recipe for how, how robot can do this. And now you'll almost get to iTunes where you can start selling robot recipes uh, there. So, so you know, you can now have private people that become very good at using their robot and they're gonna sell them that this is, you know, Henrik's pasta bolognese and then I get a little bit of money every time people use my recipe for doing this. Yeah. So it opens up for a very different economy. That's why I love being in robotics. Right. So seeing all of this from from fourth graders building wow. companies to, to to us being mobile when we're older, yeah. giving an arm back to a guy that wow. lacks one. Uh, robotics is an amazing field and it's been so nice to hear from you uh, what's going on and I'm hopefully we'll have you on the show in the future to share even more evolution. Oh, I'll be happy to. Thank you for taking the time to do it. Absolutely. I hope you liked this episode of the podcast version of Robots in Depth. This episode is produced together with Vvolver. Vvolver is a platform and community providing engineers informative content that help them innovate. It's how engineers stay cutting edge. Optomica is the founding sponsor for Robots in Depth. Optomica runs anything in modular robotics. Dream, rent, build. Visit optomica.com to connect. I'm your host, Pasha Boy. Until the next episode, thank you for listening.